Well, let's take our Bibles this evening and open to the book of Judges, chapter number 3. Judges, chapter number 3. Did you notice anything different up here? Some of you are having PTSD seeing these desks. <laughs> uh, Brother Lucius is remembering third grade. You were homeschooled, though, weren't you? Yeah, we, we knew, we, we figured you didn't go much past third grade. <laughs> uh, but uh, I want to start tonight with a little bit of a competition. And uh, I want to get uh, two people to help me here. Shiana, would you come and help me here? And uh, Seth Martin, would you come help me? We're going to have a little competition here, a little race. It's going to be uh, boys versus girls here to see who is the better gender. All right, Shani, you come over here and have a seat in the chair, in the desk there. Seth, you'll take this side over here. On the desk, you each have a sheet of paper, and on the other side is a connect the dot, a dot-to-dot puzzle, all right? So in just a second, I'm going to say go. And when I say go, you're going to flip it over, take the pen, and trace the dot-to-dot. And then once you've traced it, take the scissors and cut out the picture, all right? So the first one to trace it, cut it out, and hold it up so that the audience, the congregation here, can tell what it is. All right, so you got to cut it out neat enough. They can tell what it is is going to be the winner, all right? So we'll pretend like we're in VBS here, okay? Who's it going to be? Is it going to be the girls? Or is it going to be the boys? All right, we'll find out. On your mark, get set, go! All right, here they both got their pins going, and... Seth's having trouble finding number one there. It's the one that looks like a straight line. All right. Shanna's got it. Oh, and she's actually going in numerical order. Seth is going backwards. (laughs) Whatever works, man, just do it. That's great. All right. Shanna is, oh, she's already got hers completed and got the scissors out. Seth's just about got his closed in. He's getting closer there. And there she goes with the scissors. Slow down a little bit. You're making him look bad. Slow down a little bit. Just give him a chance. Give him a chance. Okay. All right. He's, he's coming around the corner there, almost to the last number. Just do the best you can. It's all right. So just go ahead. Very good. Yeah, take your time. You got it. If you want to go get a drink or something, come back. You can do that there. <laughs> Ta-da! What is it? Butterfly! Very good. All right. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. I, I, I may have misled you a little bit. This was actually not a competition of boys versus girls. There is a key difference between our two voluntolds here that came up tonight. What was challenging about your setup over here? Okay. Well, other than not knowing your numbers. <laughs> Uh, what is that desk set up for? A little kid. All right. Right-handed or left-handed? Right. Right-handed. All right. And what about the scissors you have there? Did you notice anything about those? Right-handed. right-handed scissors. Are you right-handed? You're not? Oh, man. You mean you? I put you at a disadvantage intentionally? That's terrible. That's just terrible of me. Let's give them both a hand, though. Shayana, by the way, is right-handed, and she got the right-handed desk and the amphibious 
No, ambidextrous scissors there. Say, what in the world does this have to do with Judges? Well, some of you are already ahead of me here because in Judges chapter number 3, we are looking tonight at the story of a judge by the name of Ehud. Ehud. Now, just to recap, in the book of Judges, we have the record of Israel's history for about 400 years between uh, the time that they entered the conquer, uh, and conquered the promised land, you know, right after Joshua died, until King Saul was coronated. So you have about a 400-year history, and during this time, you have this vicious cycle that just keeps repeating, where Israel turns from God and they worship idols, And because of their rebellion and their sin, God punishes them by sending foreign armies in to conquer them and subduing them and basically making them live as servants of of those armies. And then after a while of that, they finally get the picture and they cry out to the Lord and the Lord raises up a deliverer, a judge, uh, to deliver them from their enemies and to usher in another era of peace. But it only lasts for a little while And they end up going right back into sin and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse as this cycle repeats. And so as you go through the book, the stories at the beginning are really not so bad, even as we'll see tonight. Last week we looked at Othniel and uh, he, his story was really not a bad story and there's an emphasis there on, on how that uh, he was able to deliver Israel because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And tonight we're going to look at the second of the judges, a guy by the name of Ehud. And to be honest, his story is as exciting as it is disgusting. So let's read verses 12, and we're going to actually read uh, all the way down to verse number 30 to begin with. Judges chapter 3 and verse number 12. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and and Amalek, and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, Ehud the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length, and he girded it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. I love blunt statements like that in the Bible. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present, but he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat, and Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade, so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly. And the dirt came out. 
Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. And when he was gone out, his servants came. And when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber. They tarried till they were ashamed, and behold, he opened not the door. They opened, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore they took a key and opened them, and behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And he had escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped unto Searath. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mount of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mount and he before them. And he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about ten thousand men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man." So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore years. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and these Old Testament stories that have been recorded for us for our learning so that we might uh, see in them the eternal truth that you want us to live by. And I pray that tonight as we look at the story of Ehud that you would encourage us that you would challenge us and convict us, teach us what we need to know, and change us into what we need to be so that we are more like Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. See what I mean about this story being as exciting as it is disgusting? I mean, there are a few stories in the Bible that have more gross detail than you find here, and we're not going to elaborate on those portions of it tonight, but it is a part of the story that God included for us. And this story is a time that uh, probably occurred, I don't know, maybe 60 years or so after Joshua has died. Uh, Remember, Othniel ushered in a a time of peace that lasted for 40 years. But there came a point where Israel again got away from the Lord. So number one, we see Israel's sin here listed in verses 12 uh, through 14. We're not told all the details about what they did or, or anything like that, but it simply says in verse number 12 that they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And really that is a theme throughout the book. Again and again they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And having said that, the Lord tells us that He strengthened this king of Moab by the name of Eglon because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And so Eglon gets together a a small confederation of other nations, other city-states, and they go and they attack Israel. Uh, They take possession of some of the cities and they oppress them. And it says in verse number 14 that Israel then served Eglon for a total of 18 years. Now the first thing we notice here is already things are starting to get worse in Israel than even the previous time. Before, in Othniel's story, when God sent the foreign armies to oppress them, it only took eight years for them to get the picture and for them to cry out to the Lord, for them to repent of their sin and to turn to the Lord. This time, it took 18 years, over twice as long. As we think about that, how many people do we have in here, young people that are 18 years or younger? Raise your hand. Good and high. Raise your hand. You are younger than 18. All right. Look around you tonight. That means, you can put your hands down, every one of these young people, had they been living in this day, all they would have ever known 
was living under the rule of the Moabites. 18 years is a long time to be oppressed by a nation like this. This was 18 years in which the idolatry is apparently continuing to go on and they're being oppressed by the Moabites and they're having, um, it seems like they were probably having to pay tribute or taxes to, to the Moabites to keep them from coming and, and attacking them again. But what we find here is, is the same pattern being repeated. And we'll notice this all throughout the book. And for us as readers and looking back with the advantage of history, it's almost frustrating to us, right? It's like, come on, don't you know what's going to happen if you go down this road? Are you not getting this? Do you not understand that when you turn from the Lord that things are going to get bad? Things are, things are going to be awful. You're going to be oppressed. You're going to not have freedom. You're going to have to pay money to other people. I mean, all kinds of bad things. But they, they didn't. They didn't get it. It reminds me of a verse in Second Peter. Second Peter 2, verse 22 says, But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. You know, just like that illustration, a dog turning to his own vomit or a pig that you, know, you can wash that pig and get it spick and span, but as soon as you let that pig go, what's it going to do? It's going to go back to the pig pen and roll in the mud. That's what pigs do. That is what a foolish person does. And when people reject the Lord, they will return to folly again and again and again, never even seeing the foolishness of it. You know, when you, when you see things going on in our world, you see people who've rejected God making really bad decisions, and you think to yourself, why are they doing that? That seems so foolish and it seems so obvious to you and me that the end, the outcome is going to be bad. Remember, it's because they have rejected the Lord. And when you will not let God in your life and you will not let God in your thoughts, you are open to every kind of foolishness that there is. Now, I think it's noteworthy too who the oppressors were this time. It was the Moabites. The first... um, significant encounter we have with the Moabites in Scripture comes uh, back in the book of Numbers. We won't take time to look at that whole story, but I'm sure you remember the story of, of Balaam's donkey. That involved the Moabites. Balak was the king of the Moabites, and he tried to hire Balaam to curse the Israelites. And remember that whole story that initially he said, absolutely not, but then Balak kept asking and asking. And so finally he said, all right, I'll come down and we'll talk. And, and on the way there, the, the angel of the Lord was there to slay Balaam and the donkey saved him from being killed. And, but he got mad at the donkey and, and so he started kicking and hitting and punching his donkey. And the donkey said, what are you hitting me for? You know what amazes me about that story? Is Balaam didn't even bat an eye when his donkey talked to him. I mean, if you had a, we had some donkeys here last night and Friday night and, you know, cute little animals, unless one of the other animals was trying to get their food and then they were not so cute. But I'm going to tell you, if, if one of those donkeys had looked up at me and said, hello, how are you? I would probably not have just said, fine, how are you doing? I, just say it. But that was, that was Balaam and that was Balak the Moabites. Okay, And so then the, the very next thing that happens after that is, is the Moabites sent their daughters in to tempt the sons of Israel 
and it worked. And they, they got them involved in all kinds of horrible things and, and idol worship, and God had to punish the Israelites for it. And that was because Balaam told Balak how to do it. He said, I can't curse them, but here's how you can bring the curse of God upon them, tempt them to sin. And that was the Moabites. And because of that, there was long-standing animosity between the Israelites and the Moabites. These are the people who God sent to rule over the Israelites. Think about that right there, just as a statement about God's feeling and God, how upset God was at the Israelites that He would say, I would rather have the Moabites ruling over you than to let you keep doing what you're doing. So Israel has gotten away from the Lord. And God sends the Moabites to oppress them, and the name of their king was Eglon. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. That's what the Bible says, all right? It may not be politically correct, but that's what the Bible says. And I'll just be honest with you. If you're going to name a very fat king, isn't Eglon like the perfect fat king name? And so he's the king of Moab. And the Israelites are under their oppression for 18 years when finally, verse 15, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. took them 18 years, but finally they did. And here it is again that when they cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. You know, this is another recurring theme that no matter how bad it got, when the Israelites returned to the, when they turned back to the Lord, God was always there. In His mercy and His grace, God was there to deliver them. And so God raised up a deliverer, verse 15. We are introduced to this man by the name of Ehud. Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite. And the first thing we're told about him, other than what family or tribe he belongs to, is that he was a man that was left-handed. So number two, we're going to call him Israel's Savior because this was the man that God raised up to deliver them. He was a Benjamite, and he was left-handed. So notice here his affliction, his affliction, his disability, his handicap. He was left-handed. Now, I know that's not politically correct either, but in the original, in the, in the Hebrew of the Bible, it actually, the way it reads literally, is he was crippled in his right hand. He was crippled in his right hand. And that was their way of saying that he was left-hand dominant. He couldn't use his right hand as well as he could use his left hand. Why is, it, why is that significant? Well, 90% of the world's population is right-handed. The other 10% are wrong-handed. I mean, left-handed, right? Uh, how many in here tonight, you are left-handed? Come on, be proud. All right, we got a good number in here, maybe more than 10%. Wonderful. Y'all are all great people. Love you, all right? But you are a minority. And in Bible times, that was seen as a disability. It really was. It was seen as a handicap. Now, here's an interesting thing. The name Benjamin actually means son of my right hand. Isn't that interesting? When Benjamin was born... Um, this is back in the book of Genesis when he was, uh, when he was born to Jacob, who later became Israel. Um, remember, his, his, uh, his mother named him Benoni, but then his father renamed him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So he was from a tribe that was called sons of my right hand, but he was left-handed. 
Now, I can only speculate how that would have affected him and throughout his life. Maybe he got picked on for it when he was a kid. Maybe somebody told him he was wrong-handed. I don't know. But the, the truth of the matter is that it was significant of a detail, as we'll see later in the story, that the Holy Spirit chose to include it here, that he was different than most other people in a way that many people saw as a disadvantage. Interestingly, and this is kind of an aside, but later on in in history, in subsequent generations, the left-handed men of the tribe of Benjamin would actually become pretty uh, notorious and, and famous for their skill. It kind of became a positive trademark for them. Judges chapter 20 talks about 700 chosen men of the Benjamites that were left-handed and could sling a stone at a hairbreadth and not miss. These were left-handed guys who were extremely skilled with a sling and stones. And then in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, uh, some of David's men uh, were Benjamites who were armed with bows and could use both right hand and left hand in hurling stones and shooting arrows out of a bow. These were the men who... Some people may have thought they had a disadvantage, but actually it turned out to be an advantage. If if you've ever watched um, baseball, you probably know that a left-handed pitcher is uh, generally seen as having an advantage over a right-handed pitcher. Even in basketball, a player that can shoot left-handed, oftentimes that's seen as being an advantage. So even though they're in a minority, it's something that can be used to their advantage. And that's that's what happens here with Ehud. So we see his affliction, but now, now let's notice now Eglon's assassination. Eglon's assassination. Verse 16, Ehud made him a dagger, which had two edges and of a cubit length. All right? So Ehud apparently had a little bit of skill in blacksmithing too, and he made him a, a short sword. It's called a dagger here, but it says it's a cubit. That means about 18 inches long, all right? That's, that's quite a weapon. And it was double-edged, and uh, I'm not sure exactly how he designed it, but it was small enough that it could be concealed. I think this is the first instance in Scripture of somebody concealed carrying, but I'm not sure. So he makes this dagger. He's preparing for something. And he girded under his raiment on his right thigh. Why his right thigh? Well, if you're right-handed and you need to draw a sword, you keep it usually on your left side because you're going to draw your sword across like this. Some guys maybe have a smaller weapon, a backup weapon on their right, but it's just not as easy to draw and be ready for a fight as it is coming across this way. If you're left-handed, you're going to do the opposite. You're going to put it on the right side so that you can draw it and you could fight. And in his case it made it much easier for him to conceal it. So he makes this dagger, he conceals it, and now he's going, verse number 17, to take a present to Eglon, king of Moab. Maybe this was some kind of tribute taxation or something like that, or maybe this was just, you know, they wanted to uh, uh, make this whole setup in a trap, kind of a Trojan horse kind of thing, a, a, a hidden trap, and they were just making it out like they were being, bringing this big present to the king of Moab. But he comes and he has some servants with him, and they go see Eglon, king of Moab, and they give him this big present. 
And uh, verse number 18 says that they made, they made an end to offering the present. He sent away the people that bear the present. So this is Ehud. He had some people with him that brought the present, the gift, the treasure, whatever it was. He sent them all away. But then he himself turned back and he said to the king, verse number 19, I have a secret errand unto thee. Now notice he's not lying here, okay? <laughs> but he said, I've got a secret errand unto thee. And the king says, keep silence. Don't, don't say anything right now. And so everybody else leaves. And uh, verse number 20, Ehud comes, comes back into the king's presence. And he was sitting in this private room, a summer parlor, um, that uh, the king Eglon had. And uh, Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he rose out of his seat. And the Bible says that Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into Eglon's belly. You see, probably when they got to the king's court, they had guards at the door checking for weapons. Now, we're just speculating here, but that would be the normal thing to do in a situation like this. And if somebody was carrying a weapon, a sword or a long knife or something, the guards would have expected to see it where? On their left side, because most people are right-handed. But in Ehud's case, it was on his right side because he's left-handed. And it's hidden under his garments. So they didn't see it. So he sneaks in with this dagger, and he takes that dagger, and he kills King Eglon. Now the details are given here that it went all the way in, all the way past the hilt so that he couldn't even pull it back out again. 18 inches buried in this guy's belly. He was a very fat man. And he dies. And the dirt comes out. That's what the Bible says. So what does Ehud do? Well, he goes out a secret way, locks the door behind him and leaves and doesn't make sure, tries to make sure nobody sees him. And after a while, the servants are getting kind of nervous. You know, it's been a long time King Eglon's been in there. What's he doing? Uh, you taking a nap or something? What, what's he doing in there? Maybe they knocked on the door and didn't get an answer, but at some point they finally finally decided, you know what, we, we need to find out what's going on. This isn't right. So they, opened the, they got a key and they opened the door and they found Eglon dead. Well, by this time, Ehud has gotten far away, and as we'll see in a minute, has begun to rally the Israelites to war. But what I want you to see here is that because he was left-handed, they didn't suspect that he had a hidden weapon on his right leg. And that is what he used in order to assassinate, to kill the king. He took what many people saw as a disadvantage and he used it to his advantage. Now, for Ehud's part, this was quite a bold move, was it not? I mean, God raises him up to deliver. What's his first step? I'm going to go take out the king. That's pretty courageous. And he was a pretty smart guy. He had some ingenuity about him. He's, I, I, he, the way that he came up with this plan, made this dagger, hit it and all of this sort of thing, I think these are noteworthy characteristics. You know, Joshua 1.9 says, "'Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage.'" Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. And Ehud was a man of courage. There is no doubt about that. And then we see 
Moab's annihilation. Moab's annihilation. In verse 27, it talks about how Ehud went uh, back and he blew a trumpet in Mount Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount and he before them and he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him and they took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. This was quite the victory. They, uh, Ehud goes back and the news quickly spreads of what he's done. He gathers an army together and they go and they attack Moab and 10,000 Moabite soldiers who the Bible describes as lusty. That means big and powerful, strong men. And they were men of valor. These, these were not new recruits. These were seasoned warriors. And God delivered them into the Israelites' hand under the leadership of Ehud that day. And there's something that Ehud said that we cannot overlook. Notice his words here. He said in verse number 28, For the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. He doesn't come back bragging and say, All right, I've done it. I've killed the king. Come on, follow me. We're going to beat him. No, he says, The Lord has delivered. He gave God the credit for what the Lord was doing and for what the Lord was going to do. Understand that victory, true victory, only comes through the Lord. Psalm 106, verse 13, Through God we shall do valiantly, for He it is that shall tread down our enemies. There's a lot to be said for having courage and determination and for, for you know, having good character and, and those things. But ultimately, victory comes from God. He is the one that we look to to deliver us from our enemies. And so they slew 10,000 of the Moabites that day, and the Bible says in verse number 30 that the land had rest for four score years. Four score, that's 80. 80 years. That's, that's a good long time, is it not? That they had rest, that they had peace. Ehud was used of the Lord to usher in a time of peace that was twice as long as under Othniel. For 80 years, they enjoyed their freedom. Now, I know that there's a lot of things about this story that obviously we're not going to duplicate today. But I, I do think that this story is a wonderful illustration of a of a spiritual principle that God will use what we think are our weaknesses and our disadvantages. He will use those to display His power in our lives. Turn to first or Second Corinthians chapter twelve. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Here is a passage in the New Testament that is, I think, sharing a similar principle here that the Apostle Paul had to learn. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 7.
And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness." Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. We don't know exactly what this thorn in the flesh was that Paul had. There's speculation that it may have been uh, a problem with his eyesight or something. We don't really know. But whatever it was, it was bad enough that on three distinct occasions, Paul had a season of prayer with God, asking God to take this away, and God said no. Instead, God said, I'm going to give you sufficient grace. You're going to keep your weakness, Paul, so that through your weakness, my strength might be made perfect. And you know what Paul said in response to that revelation? He said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. The thing that I thought was a disadvantage, the thing that I thought was a hindrance, was a deficiency, the thing I thought that was holding me back from being all that I could be, I realize now that that is the very thing that God wants to use so that His power is fully displayed in my life. Verse 10, he sums it up at the end of the verse, for when I am weak, then am I strong. That sounds like a contradiction, a paradox, right? What's he saying? He's saying it's when I understand just how weak I am and I learn to depend on God that His power flows through me to accomplish what I could never do on my own. What we see as a disadvantage in our life or what others think is a disadvantage, what we think is a weakness, whether it's a real weakness or just a perceived weakness, God wants to use it to display His power in our lives. And when He does it, it's obvious then that He is the one that is doing the work and He gets the glory from our life. I might pick, but I don't think being left-handed is actually a handicap. All right, sorry, Seth, you can't park in those spaces out front. You have to use the normal ones. I don't think being left-handed is an actual handicap. But there are disadvantages that you and I have in life. We all do. There are certain areas that we wish we were. We, We had more. Whether it was more education or more talent or more charisma or more ability here or more money or more influence. And there's these areas that we feel like we're disadvantaged for one reason or another circumstances that are many times out of our control that we feel like are holding us back. And too often we use those as excuses. Well, I, I, can't, I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. Because I have this, this disadvantage. 
We often think, well, if I was more talented, if I was more intelligent, if I had more money, if I was more outgoing, whatever, I could do more for God. Listen, God does not need any of that from you. He doesn't need more of anything from you except your surrender and obedience. I think of Moses when God called him at the burning bush. What did Moses immediately start doing? Did he say, okay, sure, I'll go? No. He began to make excuses why he couldn't. And among those, he said, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. And God says, who made your tongue? Moses, I'll be with you. I'll tell you what you have to say. And you know what? I'll send your brother Aaron to be a spokesman for you. I can make up for that perceived deficiency. It's not a problem for me, is what the Lord was saying. And whatever you think is a disadvantage of your life, God is able to more than make up for that. So just trust God. Stop depending on your own strength, your own abilities, because there is no limit to what God can do through you if you will stop making excuses and simply act in obedience. He will enable you to do more in His strength than you could ever accomplish in your own strength. Stop trusting in your own abilities and start trusting in God's ability. Heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. What are, you, what are you dealing with in your life that you think is a disadvantage to you? What is that thing that you think, I, I, I would do more for God or I would do this or that if this were different, if I were better at this, if I had more of that? What is it? All right, do you have it in your mind tonight? Then let me ask you this. Are you willing to let God use that disadvantage and turn it into an advantage? Are you willing to simply trust God's ability and say, I may be deficient here and here and here, but God is more than sufficient and His grace is more than sufficient. So I will glory in this infirmity that the power of Christ may rest on me. Are you willing to do that tonight? You see, what it comes down to is, are you trusting in your own abilities or are you trusting in God's ability? Which is it? There are some in here that you have been limiting what God will do through your life because you won't submit these areas. Not what God can do, but God will do. You're limiting that because you won't surrender it to Him. Tonight, I want to invite you to do just that. I want to invite you to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm not going to use this as an excuse anymore. By Your grace, I'm going to act in obedience and I'm going to trust You to work through me to accomplish Your will.